Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. As the sun came up on August 21st, 1992, a small group of U.S. Marshals reached their outpost in the thick woods of northern Idaho. From their vantage point, they could see a mid-sized ramshackle cabin, isolated from the outside world atop a mountain ridge. Around 7 a.m., the family living inside the cabin began to stir. For them, it was a normal day. They made trips to the outhouse and completed chores. The kids played with the family dog. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Except everyone that came out of the cabin was armed, including the children. U.S. Marshals snapped photos of the mother, who was pacing nervously back and forth in a long white nightgown, lost in thought, as if she knew trouble was on the horizon. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. In this episode, we look back at an event that ignited simmering anti-government sentiments and gave birth to the modern militia movement in the United States. This is the story of Ruby Ridge. The Weaver family moved to Ruby Ridge in the northeast corner of Idaho in March 1984. Randy Weaver bought the land the year before, and he built a cabin for his growing family. With no electricity or plumbing, the cabin was pretty basic. But it did have something that Weaver was desperately looking for. Isolation. Set in an area with deep lakes and thick forests of Douglas fir, Ruby Ridge felt completely separate from the outside world. Randy, a former Green Beret, and his wife Vicky decided to move there when their extreme views about race and religion became an issue with friends and co-workers back home in Iowa. They felt out of sync with society and decided to forge a new life on their own in the hills of Idaho, where they could practice their non-traditional Christian beliefs how they wanted. Randy and Vicky were religious fundamentalists who interpreted the Bible literally and believed the apocalypse was imminent. They were also white supremacists. In that sense, Ruby Ridge was perfect. In addition to being isolated, Idaho in the 90s had become both a haven for criminals on the run from the law and racists. In fact, the white supremacist group, the Aryan Nations, had its main compound near Hayden Lake, Idaho, just an hour and a half away from the Weaver home. Once he moved to Ruby Ridge, Randy Weaver began attending Aryan Nations meetings, and it was at one of those meetings that his troubles began. In the course of those meetings, he met a man who turned out to be a federal informant, who asked Weaver to buy a couple of shotguns on his behalf and then to shorten those shotguns beyond the legal limit that we were allowed to shorten a shotgun in the United States. And so there's no evidence anywhere that Randy Weaver sought out the, the opportunity to sell the weapons he was solicited, but in any case, he did it. That's Lane Crothers, a professor at Illinois State University and author of Rage on the Right. He says after Weaver was charged with selling illegally altered shotguns in January 1991, he put his property up as bail. And while he was waiting his court date, Weaver became convinced that if he was convicted, he would lose the property on Ruby Ridge. 
And so they made a decision as a family that they simply wouldn't leave the property. They were never going to allow the federal government to arrest them and that essentially they would lock themselves up in their space. And you can think of it as kind of a self-imprisonment, right? They're going to stay on Ruby Ridge. And as long as the government doesn't bother them, they're not going to they're, they're, they're not going to leave the property. But on the other hand, they're also not going to answer the summons. So in February 1991, after missing his court appearance, Randy Weaver and his family began to hunker down on their property. Friends who shared the Weaver's views brought them food and other supplies. And initially, it wasn't really that big of a deal. You see, Weaver wasn't a huge concern to authorities. There were bigger fish within the Aryan Nations organization that they were more worried about. Sure, U.S. Marshals were keeping an eye on Randy Weaver, but authorities were taking a very low-key approach. That is, until an Associated Press article on Weaver appeared in newspapers across the country in March 1992. When news spread about a white supremacist who had spent the past year holed up with his family on a mountaintop defying the federal government, it became a source of embarrassment for law enforcement. And as a result they decided it was time to act. In April 1992, U.S. Marshals and agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, the ATF, stepped up the surveillance of the Weaver property. They called it Operation Northern Exposure. And yes, it was named after the early 90s hit TV show. They put cameras around the cabin, regularly patrolled the land, and set up observation posts on neighboring properties. From their observations, agents learned the family's daily routines, and they also discovered that no one ever left the cabin without a gun. Even the kids, they carried holstered handguns. By this time, the Weavers had four children. Sarah, who was 16, 13-year-old Sammy, 12-year-old Rachel, and baby Elisheva, who was just eight months old. On August 21st, 1992, four months into the surveillance operation, six agents carrying out their typical duties hiked onto the Weaver property. They split up into two groups. One group went to an observation post, the other moved around the property. Exactly what happened next is still disputed, but here's what's been pieced together since then at trials and a U.S. Senate subcommittee hearing. While three of the agents were moving around the property, young Sammy Weaver and Kevin Harris, a 28-year-old family friend who was living at Ruby Ridge, came outside with Stryker, the Weaver's dog. Both Sammy and Kevin were carrying rifles. Catching the scent of something, Stryker began barking, and he ran away to investigate. Randy Weaver emerged from the cabin. He followed Sammy and Kevin, who had taken off down the hill to find Stryker. Hearing the commotion, the three agents who were nearby hid amongst the trees, hoping they wouldn't be discovered. But Stryker sniffed them out. Panicking, one of the agents shot the dog. Kevin Harris, the family friend, opened fire, hitting 42-year-old U.S. Marshal William Deegan in the chest. As Harris, Sammy, and Randy Weaver ran back to the cabin, the injured officer fired off seven shots of his own. In just a few minutes, the peaceful operation that had been going on for months turned into a chaotic and confusing firefight. Sammy Weaver was hit two times in the back. He fell dead on the path to his family's cabin. Agent William Deegan was also dead. After the gun battle, the FBI took over command. 
They sent in more than 100 agents and helicopters and small armored vehicles. It was still unclear what had happened, who fired first. And in the confusion, the agency revised the rules of engagement. The standard rules of engagement allow the federal agents to fire to protect civilian lives or the lives of fellow agents that are under immediate danger. Um, The FBI special agent in charge redrafted those orders while flying out to the um, uh, site to say that they would be free to fire at anyone who was armed. That was a lethal order. Agents were given the power to shoot anyone with a gun, whether they were posing an immediate threat or not. And it would lead to further tragedy. The following day on August 22nd at around 6 p.m., An FBI sniper observed Randy and his 16-year-old daughter, Sarah, along with family friend Kevin Harris, entering a shed. Agents say they didn't know it at the time, but that's where Sammy's body lay. They were all carrying guns. When they re-emerged, the sniper fired off a shot and hit Randy in the arm. All three ran to the cabin, and as they stepped inside, the sniper fired again. The bullet penetrated the front door. It hit Randy's wife, Vicky in the head. She fell to the floor with her infant daughter in her arms. The baby was unharmed, but Vicky was dead. Kevin Harris, the 28-year-old family friend, was also severely injured by shrapnel. Outside the cabin, the FBI have maintained they had no idea what was going on. They were unaware that the sniper's bullet had killed Vicky Weaver. Meantime, at the bottom of the hill, about two miles from the cabin, the FBI had set up a roadblock, and there was something else happening there. As soon as word got out about the standoff, about two or three dozen angry neighbors gathered at the main roadblock, yelling insults at the agents. They held up signs that read, Freedom of Religion and Your Family Could Be Next. Mixed in with the local farmers were young far-right skinheads wearing swastika armbands who had made the trip from the nearby Aryan Nations compound. And so very quickly it goes from a very rural, very isolated point in the North Idaho mountains to the centerpiece of a um, very angry, very aggressive anti-government sentiment. Things got even worse when it was finally revealed on day four of the standoff that Sammy had been killed. Anger exploded in the crowd, which had grown to over 100 people. Protesters screamed, baby killer, and called officers traitors anytime they walked by. The media were also camping out at the roadblock. They captured the volatile scene and broadcast it to the nation. It showed children standing at the front of the barricades holding signs that said, I could be next. Other children held pieces of paper with targets printed on them. Those images would become symbols of the far right for years to come. That emotional hook of um, uh, the, the, the government is coming to get me and it's actually killing your children, which it actually did, right? I mean, it's not like this is a fantasy in this case. It did it. And whatever one thinks about the legitimacy of the self-defense of the agents and, and, and in the moment, the people who were predisposed to attack the government didn't care about the self-defense issue. All they cared about was these armed professionals came onto private property. Again, this is their argument, not mine. These armed professionals came onto private property and murdered a 14-year-old kid. Again, from their point of view. 
Because there was no phone in the cabin, federal agents were unable to speak directly with Randy Weaver. The FBI dropped off a portable phone on the cabin's porch using a small robotic device, but Weaver ignored it. So agents were forced to use loudspeakers to communicate with the family. Unaware that Vicky was lying dead inside the cabin, agents began each day by shouting, Hey Vicky, send out your kids. We're having pancakes. For Randy and his three surviving daughters, it felt incredibly cruel. They were convinced that authorities were taunting them. Federal agents also used loudspeakers to bombard the cabin with tape-recorded messages from friends and family, urging an end to the standoff. Randy Weaver's sister pleaded with him to come out. She said, These are great guys. They're really trying to help you. But inside the cabin, Randy Weaver had vowed he would rather die than surrender. At around this time, the FBI was approached by someone offering help. Bo Greitz was a decorated former Green Beret and served in Vietnam, and reportedly was the basis for the Rambo character played by Sylvester Stallone. Greitz was also an outspoken leader in the white supremacist movement. He had also once run for president as a third-party candidate under the slogan, God, Guns, and Greitz. From the beginning of the standoff, Greitz had been calling the FBI, offering his services as a negotiator. He felt, as a fellow Green Beret with similar beliefs, he was the only one who could talk Randy Weaver off the mountain with no more bloodshed. Initially, the FBI said, no thanks. They could solve it on their own. But Greitz wouldn't take no for an answer. He flew out to Idaho and made his way to the roadblock near the Weaver property. The stocky, charismatic ex-soldier with a loud voice bragged about his background and told the protesters he could end the siege. And the media, they ate it up. Bo Greitz was on TV newscasts around the country. You see, as the days dragged on, reporters had very little else to report on. The FBI was being incredibly secretive about what was happening. And they provided very few details at daily media briefings, like this one by Gene Glenn, the agent in charge of the operation. We continue to exhaust every available means to resolve this matter without further harm to anyone. As you can imagine, the FBI wasn't keen on working with Greitz. They didn't think inserting such a big and bombastic personality into the mix was a very good idea. But things were getting desperate. Finally, on day eight of the standoff, they gave Greitz the go-ahead to meet with Weaver. It was like he had been waiting his whole life for this moment. Greitz was brought up to the forward command post. He hopped out in a tan jungle jacket and went around shaking everybody's hand. Then officers whisked him up the mountain in a jeep and dropped him off 20 feet from the cabin. As he walked toward the building, he saw Weaver in a window. Greitz identified himself and told Weaver he wanted to talk. Weaver responded by telling Greitz the shocking news that Vicky had been killed by an FBI sniper. Remember, at this point, no one outside the cabin knew that Weaver's wife was dead. In addition, Randy told Bogreitz that he and Kevin were both injured pretty badly. An hour later, when Greitz came back down and told the FBI what he'd learned, agents were stunned. To this day, they claimed that no one knew that Vicky had been hit and were devastated by the news. Protesters gathered at the roadblock were outraged. The volatile situation exploded once again with anger. For the FBI, 
The focus now turned to getting the rest of the weavers out of the cabin safely. Inside the cabin, Kevin Harris's condition was deteriorating fast. Shrapnel from the bullet that killed Vicky had torn open his arm and entered his chest near his heart. It was unclear how much longer he would survive without medical attention. The next day, Bo Greitz went back to visit Randy, and he warned him he better send Kevin out for help, because if he died, Randy would be held responsible. Finally, on August 29th, day nine of the siege, Kevin came out and was sent to hospital. The FBI were optimistic that things were finally progressing. But it wasn't over yet. Randy and his three daughters remained in the cabin. They were scared, and they didn't trust anyone. Everything Randy believed could happen, all of the fears he had about the government, were coming true. After Kevin Harris left the cabin, Greitz returned with a body bag for Vicky. It had been over a week since she was killed, and her body lay under the kitchen table covered with a blanket. Her children walked past it when they needed to get food and other supplies. Bo Greitz told them the time had come to let her go. He dropped the body bag on the floor, and Randy helped put Vicky inside. They zipped it up and carried her out of the cabin. The next morning, August 31st, Greitz went back up the hill to Randy. This time, he remained outside, begging Randy to come out. At first, it looked like he was digging in his heels, refusing to leave. Then, just after noon, the door to the cabin opened, and Randy and the girls came out into the sunshine. The 11-day siege was over. But the legacy of what played out in that isolated property on Ruby Ridge would last for years to come. Most definitely, Ruby Ridge was a tragedy. Three lives lost and many others permanently scarred by the events. But the standoff in Randy Weaver's case became something else, a valuable recruitment tool for elements of the radical right to start organizing. In particular, the modern militia movement. Lane Crothers says Ruby Ridge created the political space in which the modern militia could form. A number of such people began meeting uh, just a few months later, met in Estes Park, Colorado, and tried to put together a movement that reflected the hard right and the, the, the long-standing values of the, of the hard right in America, but in a way that they hoped would avoid the overt racism and survivalism of the 70s movement. In other words, they wanted to create a militia movement in the 90s that was more palatable to more people. In a sense, it was a public relations campaign to put a new spin on an old way of thinking. The ideas that those groups built on are deeply embedded in American political culture and American political life. This notion that there's a, a an abusive federal government or central government that's risking liberty. That's that's the core argument of the American Revolution, right? You read the Declaration of Independence, that's what the whole thing's about. Um, the notion that there are these militia, armed militia groups that went out and, and citizen soldiers who came and saved the country from the abuse of authority, these ideas are deeply embedded in our society. The revised militia movement that sprung up after Ruby Ridge exploded in popularity, with chapters springing up around the country. Then in February 1993, just six months after the siege at Ruby Ridge, the nation turned its attention to a mysterious religious sect in Waco, Texas. 
Yeah, there's 75 men around our building and they're shooting at us in Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel? Yeah, tell them there are children and women in here and to call it off. On a cold, drizzly Sunday morning, over 70 ATF agents in full battle gear descended on the isolated compound of the Branch Davidians, headed up by charismatic leader David Koresh. Concerned that Koresh and his followers were stockpiling weapons in preparation for end times, the ATF attempted an early morning raid. We looked at this story in our Doomsday Cult series on Season 1 of History of the 90s. You may remember the raid went disastrously wrong. In the end, 10 people were killed, four agents, and six Branch Davidians. Koresh survived the initial onslaught and refused to surrender. Like Ruby Ridge, a standoff began, and once again, the FBI took over. This time, the siege dragged on for 51 days, ending after FBI tanks rammed the main building and fired tear gas into the building in an attempt to force an evacuation. But shortly after, a fire broke out, quickly engulfing the building and killing 75 people, including 25 children. For many on the far right that already had anti-government attitudes, the incident confirmed the narrative that the feds were coming for their weapons and their property. Together, Ruby Ridge and Waco were a powerful combination. It validated the belief of the far right that they were at war with the federal government. Experts have said, had only one of those events occurred, things might have been different. But coming as they did as a one-two punch, the ramifications were massive. Ruby Ridge and Waco were used by militia groups to recruit thousands of people in nearly every state. At the movement's peak in the mid-90s, there were approximately 400 militia groups across the country. It was a leaderless resistance, with independent cells operating individually, but with a shared goal of preserving individual and civil liberties at any cost. Michigan, in particular, was a militia hotspot. Multiple organizations loosely formed into an umbrella group known as the Michigan Militia, headed up by Norm Olson, a pastor and gun shop owner. Members were recruited at gun shows, attended public meetings at libraries and schools, and listened to militia talk show hosts on shortwave radio. Ruby Ridge also turned Randy Weaver into a hero for the movement. But it wasn't a role that he latched onto. Weaver spent much of the 90s embroiled in legal matters before slipping out of the public eye. Following the events at Ruby Ridge in August 1992, both Weaver and Kevin Harris were charged with multiple offenses, including the murder of FBI agent William Deegan. At trial, defense lawyers focused heavily on the narrative that the government had abused its authority in the Weaver case, first by entrapping Weaver in the original gun charge, and next by illegally intruding on his private property. Multiple conspiracy theories were also floated by defense lawyers, muddying the waters even further for jury members. In the end, Harris was found not guilty of all charges, and Weaver was only found guilty on the failure-to-appear charge from the original gun case. He was sentenced to 18 months in jail and received a $10,000 fine. Weaver's lawyer, Jerry Spence, addressed the media after the verdict. It proves again that a jury, if it has all the facts, can do justice in this country. In 1995, Weaver won a $3.1 million lawsuit against the federal government. $1 million for each of his daughters and $100,000 for him. 
The militia movement continued to grow rapidly after Ruby Ridge and Waco, but initially drew very little attention from authorities. Then a report released in 1994 by the Anti-Defamation League flagged the growing movement. It warned militia groups were a rising concern and would remain so in the coming months. But no one could have predicted what happened next. In April 1995, Timothy McVeigh, who had loose ties to the Michigan militia, detonated a 5,000-pound truck bomb in front of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. We look back at this event in detail in episode 19 of History of the 90s. You may remember that 168 people were killed that day, including 19 children who attended a daycare center in the building. McVeigh wasn't a full-fledged member of the Michigan militia. He had attended meetings while living in the area with Terry Nichols, who helped carry out the bombing. But McVeigh shared many of their views. In the book American Terrorist, McVeigh is quoted as saying, What the U.S. government did at Waco and Ruby Ridge was dirty, and I gave dirty back to them at Oklahoma City. Following the standoffs at Ruby Ridge and Waco, the FBI's credibility was severely damaged, and they were forced to make some changes. In the case of Ruby Ridge, FBI Director Louis Free told Congress in 1995 it was a series of terribly flawed law enforcement operations with tragic consequences. Free ended rules of engagement that allowed FBI agents to shoot on sight. The FBI Director also revamped the Bureau's crisis response structure, and disciplined 12 FBI employees after concluding none had committed any crimes or intentional misconduct. Following Oklahoma City, law enforcement initiated a major crackdown on the militia movement, and scores of militia groups collapsed as a result. And after 9-11 in 2001 and the horrors of that day, the focus shifted away from domestic to foreign terrorism. But that doesn't mean militias and the radical right wing went away. In the early 2000s, some militia groups turned their attention to other activities, like acting as vigilante immigration enforcers on the southern U.S. border with Mexico. More recently, with the rise of the Patriot Movement, armed militia groups have once again infiltrated our news feeds. First in 2017 at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, then at Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. And finally, at the U.S. Capitol attack on January 6, 2021. Convinced that the election had been stolen from former President Donald Trump, members of the militia group the Oath Keepers were among the thousands of protesters who went to Washington in an attempt to stop the certification of President Joe Biden. This broad sense that the elite has cooked the books and we have to demand direct personal accountability um, is very much a chain that was uh, begun to be forged anyway back at Ruby Ridge. It has had many, many blacksmiths in the ensuing decades add to it. Founded in 2009, the Oath Keepers is a large, loosely organized paramilitary group. It recruits current or former military and law enforcement and emphasizes military training. It's considered one of the largest radical anti-government groups in the country. 
About two dozen people affiliated with the Oath Keepers, including founder and leader Stuart Rhodes, were charged with seditious conspiracy and other offenses in connection with the January 6th insurrection. Through the decades, the modern militia movement has risen, fallen, and risen again. But the man considered the inspiration for the 90s surge has remained mostly out of the spotlight. After successfully suing the federal government, Randy Weaver wrote a book about his experiences at Ruby Bridge, which he sold at gun shows in the 90s. He remarried and today lives in Kalispell, Montana, close to his daughters and his grandchildren. The family still owns the property at Ruby Ridge. Thanks for listening to this look back at the events at Ruby Ridge in 1992. If this was of interest to you and you're new to the show, I would suggest you scroll back in the feed to check out our episodes on Waco and the Oklahoma City bombing. Thanks to my guest, Professor Lang Crothers. His book, Rage on the Right, was a great resource for this episode. I'll put information in the show notes if you want to check it out. If you have a suggestion for an episode, you can always let me know. I love hearing from you. Just send me a message on Twitter or Facebook at 1990s History or on Instagram at that90spodcast. You can also email me at 90s at curiouscast.ca. That's 90s at curiouscast.ca. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.